welcome everyone to uh, service here at Oahu First United Methodist Church in Honolulu. Oh, this okay. I'm sorry. This is Stony Creek, right? I get my I get those two mixed up a lot. Uh, welcome everyone. If you're listening uh, in your cars on 90.3 FM, uh, please give me a little honk. Okay. And if you're not listening, don't bother to honk. Um, we're going to uh, begin with uh, community sharing. Good morning, church. I'm Dave Mongson, liturgist for today. I have a few announcements. We are passing out Valentine packages, making Valentines for Bishop Elementary staff. We'll collect next Sunday, February 7th. Collecting mittens, gloves, hats for Bishop, and also accepting canned goods for School Common Food, Community Food Bank. I'd also like to introduce our guest speaker for today, who is John George. He is Sarah's father, or AJ and Dion's grandfather. Will you please join me for our call to worship? Come, let us give thanks to the Lord with whole hearts. Fear, Fear of, the of the Lord, Lord is the, the beginning of wisdom. Glory be to one whose good wonders are to be remembered. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Lord is gracious and full of compa compassion. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Lord feeds the righteousness with truth. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Come, Come, let us, let give, us give thanks, thanks to, to the God. Lord, God. Our first hymn this morning is Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Please join me in our opening prayer. Almighty, Almighty God, God, light from light, from light, light who, who commands the universe the and all that is made. made. Your, word Your word is, is the, the power, power that, makes that makes whole, whole what, is what is broken, broken the, the force of good, good and, and the food, food of, peace. of peace. Teach us now as you taught in the synagogue. Hail us now so that in all that we say and do, Freedom, the freedom we have from you, you made the for others too. too. In Jesus' name, as okay. we pray, amen. Our next hymn is God Hath Spoken by the Prophets. God hath 
Would everyone please join me in the prayer of illumination? Holy Spirit, your people call out for understanding. Bring to our yearning hearts and minds the truth of your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 20. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God. God of Herbert, on the day of the assembly when you say, if I hear the voice of the Lord my God anymore or give the, see this grace fire, I will die. Then the Lord replied to me, they are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your own people. I will put your words in the mouths of the prophet who shall speak to them. Anything that I command, anyone who does not heed the word that the prophet shall speak in my name, I, will, I myself will hold accountable. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or who presumes to be spoken in my name, a word that I have not command the prophet to speak, the prophet shall die. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And now, this is your invitation to the offering. Do not let idols grow and multiply in your hands, but give of yourselves, your time, and your possessions out of love for this creation and honor toward you what you have been given. And now the prayer for, of thanksgiving. For earth, which you have molded, for creatures and animals, plants, water, air, and fire, for Jesus who died and rose again, for the breath of life, we give you thanks, O God. Let these gifts be used for good wherever there is need, in the name of all that you have first given us, especially Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. And now prayers for the people. It, it, is there a list of specific prayers for members of the congregation? Requests for? No? All right. Holy and awesome God, your son's authority is found in integrity and living truth, not the assertion of power over others. Open our imaginations to new dimensions of your love and heal us of all that severs us from you and one another, that we may grow into the vision you unfold before us. Amen. And now if you'll join me in the prayer that we all know, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now the call to confession. The one who pardons, heals, and strengthens all who, sp who repent calls us to name our failings and our hopes. Let us confess our sins in the presence of God and one another. Holy and all-powerful God, who commands all spirits, comforts all those in distress, and casts out destructive forces, we confess that we are unable to do your will. We protect what is familiar and reject what is unknown. We admire those with courage, but exercise ourselves from falter from the truth. We forget that you are always with us and that with you all things are possible. Forgive us, lead us, make us new, remove our desire to heed false prophets, and show us your way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all, amen. Please take a moment in contemplation of our shortcomings and sins. The God who made you and knows your every thought hears you now and forgives you all your sin. You have been redeemed through Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, who is Alpha and Omega, all in all. Amen. Will you now join me for the affirmation of faith, the Apostles' Creed, ecumenical version. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day, he arose again. He arose again. He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand, at the right hand of the Father, and will come again and judge the living and the dead. I believe, I believe in the Holy in Spirit, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy, Holy Universal, Universal Church, Church, the communion, communion of, saints, of saints, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of, sins, of sins, the resurrection, the resurrection of, the body, of the body, and the life, life everlasting. everlasting. Amen. Amen. Our second scripture reading is from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us process knowledge. Knowledge puffed up, but love builds up, builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God in knowing of, by him, hence as to the eating of food offered to idols. We know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, though whom are all things and thoughts what, whom do exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become as accustomed to idols until now. They still think of the food they are eating, food offered to the idol, and their conscience begin being weak. It's defiled. Food will not bring us closer to God, 
we are no worse off than if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that the liberty of your, yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of the idols, might they think not, might, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to point of eating food sacrificed to idols. By so, so by your knowledge, these weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you, you thus sin against members of your own family and wound their conscience when they are weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is in the cause of your feeling, falling, I will never cast, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Our next hymn is All Creatures of Our God and King.
Final reading today is from Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. This is the New Revised Standard Version. This is about the man with the unclean spirit. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded by his teaching, for he taught them as one with having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Today, this is not going to be so much a sermon as a Sunday school lesson at length. Um, First, let me explain to you who I am. Besides being Sarah's father, um, I spent 30 years in law enforcement. So I'm used to rules. Used to following rules. Uh, But one of the things I always had a problem with some of my officers, I was a supervisor, as a sergeant, and they had some problems telling their story. They didn't know how to get from point A to point B and, and make everyone understand what they had done and why they had done it. And I used to tell them that there are a minimum of three parts to every good story and to every good joke. And if you can't tell a joke, you can't tell a story. Uh, Which reminds me of a book that I was given and I used in teaching my officers how to properly write a report. Uh, a, A panda comes into a restaurant, orders the meal, eats the meal, stands up, pulls the gun out, fires it in the air, and runs out the door. So the mater D follows him outside and asks him, what's what's all that about? He said, well, I just read a book on my heritage. I looked up pandas in the book, and it says, pandas eat, shoots, and leaves. It's all a matter of punctuation. That's important. Another one would be an Orthodox rabbi, a United Methodist pastor, and a Buddhist monk walk into a bar. The bartender looks at them and says, is this a joke? Now that's an exception to the three-part rule. So when I tell you about what's going on here, we have to begin to read in between the lines. What, what, is, what is it we're being told by the scriptures here? Much of 1 Corinthians 8 might be summarized as an argument for the priority of love over the pursuit of knowledge. Paul takes us on this topic by starting with where the Uh, the Corinthians are at in their thinking as they consider eating meat that was previously sacrificed to pagan idols. They knew who God was, and this didn't bother them. But some new Christians, seeing them eating in the temple of a pagan idol, dinner with their friends or family, 
were confused. Being Greeks, they were very proud of their knowledge and logic. They were very much into their heads of how they knew Jesus. I'm told the earliest manuscripts, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, would not have contained any punctuation whatsoever. So it's un it isn't unusual for us to be confused, hence the East Shoots and Leaves reference earlier. Um, but since, uh, however, uh, we should include quotation marks in uh, 8.1, since the phrase, all of us possess knowledge, makes more sense if it's Paul's quotation of a Corinthian slogan. He's actually making fun of them. You think you're so smart. Because their whole attitude was, we must be smarter. Each and every day we must be more intelligent, much, much more logical. As the chapter unfolds, it becomes clear that Paul has little interest in their so-called knowledge. And in verse 7, he blatantly contradicts the slogan from verse 1 by arguing that all do not have knowledge. Rather, in verse 11, Paul notes the potential of this knowledge to destroy others rather than to build them up in love. We've all seen that from time to time. We have a have you ever been in a classroom where you have a student whose whole purpose for being in class is to stump the teacher? I'll ask a question even the teacher doesn't know, but I know the answer, so I will be, I will be smarter than the teacher. Uh, Paul will return to this uh, hierarchy of a love over knowledge later in, uh, in, in 13, as he upholds love above spiritual gifts and knowledge. Love becomes the pinnacle. Everything else is subordinate to that. Paul develops the priority of love over knowledge more in uh, 8, 2 through 3, as he states that anyone laying claim to knowledge proves their very lack of the same. I'm so smart. I'm so smart. No, I'm not. Uh, such as a person who stands in contrast to one who loves God and then and then benefits from being known by God. While the use of the term knowledge here, as opposed to wisdom, we're not talking about wisdom, we're talking about knowledge, I know more things. It makes the text somewhat distinct from earlier chapters. The heart of Paul's message in chapter 8 echoes similar sentiments throughout Corinthians, where Paul points out that the world did not come to know God through wisdom. That the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And in short, although the language of chapter 8 is slightly different, the sentiment is still the same. Love is where we are at. Love is what we are about. And Paul likewise connects to other chapters with this development of the theme and it, it continues all through Corinthians. All right. Paul uses the criterion of upbuilding one another. We need to build up one another, not tear one down. If, if I am going to be smart, that means that you're not so smart. But if I upbuild you in love... If I give you love, if I love you, if I care for you, if I watch out for you, if I build you up, that only can cause everyone else to do the same thing. And then we all rise in love. It all becomes greater. Beyond prioritizing love, Paul also hopes that the Corinthians will realize the harm of their so-called knowledge is wrecking upon some community members. 
to address this, Paul continues on the strategy of quoting slogans from the Corinthians as he quips, There is no God but one. They know that. They've been told that. And while Paul has no qualms about overturning the Corinthians' claim to universal knowledge, Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians' believe in one God is not incorrect, and he affirms as much in other verses. Even though he talks about the so-called other gods of the world being only powerless idols. For Paul, this knowledge alone is not enough to justify the individual freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, now think about this. This is not something that comes up uh, in everyday Christian life in the 21st century in America or anywhere else in the world. Um, we don't worry about whether or not our friends have invited us to the pagan temple for barbecue. It's not something we concern ourselves with. The Corinthians that did that were secure in the knowledge that God was the only God and eating a meat, a meat in a temple to some other idol was not an offense to God. They were just having dinner. But to a new Christian, seeing someone go into a pagan temple, a leader of their church, might be a little bit off-putting. It might be a little confusing. So what he's really talking about is not the eating of meat. And he talks about, you know, if, if, if I eat meat and that will cause some other member of our church to stray, then I will not eat meat. And if eating meat will make them stronger, then I will eat meat. So it doesn't, what I will do is I will do whatever it takes to strengthen them in their belief, in their love. He observes that the liberating forces that the knowledgeable members of the church have may be destructive to the less knowledgeable. So we can use knowledge as a, as a weapon. Perhaps not intentionally, but it can be used as a weapon to hurt our fellow Christians. And that would be destructive to our love for one another. Paul equates wrongs done against fellow Christians with sinning against Christ himself. If I cause a fellow member, a fellow Christian, to stray, haven't I sinned against Jesus himself? The least of these you do to me. The rhetorical move of equating the weak in the community with Christ is not far removed from that. Congregations today are not likely to engage in an active debate over whether or not to eat pagan meat or in a pagan temple. However, what we're talking about here is exercising rights that we may have to the detriment of our brothers and sisters. Do we have a friend who has a problem with, with alcohol and we have alcohol and we drink freely in front of them? Will that lead them astray? If it would lead them astray, then we shouldn't do it. The alcoholics, the ones who, are at, who have, have come to the conclusion that they are alcoholics, probably won't have a problem with you drinking in front of them. It's the ones who don't think they're alcoholics who, in fact, are drunks, and your drinking will cause them to sin. In the Methodist Church, we don't gamble. Well, we don't, we don't do it inside the sanctuary for sure. Uh, I do know a few people who have, on occasion, bought a lottery ticket or gone to a poker game 
or gone to the casinos or the riverboats or wherever and have placed a few dollars down. Now, as long as you're not betting the rent money or the mortgage money or the kids' college fund, I'm not going to stand here and say you're a bad person. However, if I have a friend who has a problem with gambling and I drag him along with me to the boat, I've sinned against them. I've caused them to be weak. And that's not out of love. So will we sacrifice our personal freedom for the greater good? Just about every state in the Union at this point has a smoking law. Can't smoke in buildings, can't smoke near certain buildings, you can't smoke on the grounds of certain buildings. In the 50s, people smoked almost everywhere. They smoked in planes, they smoked in restaurants. The joke was at that point, uh, even into the 70s, if you want to make certain that the food gets delivered in the restaurant in a timely fashion, go ahead and light up a cigarette because as soon as you've taken that first puff, the waitress or the waiter will be there with your food. Why don't we smoke in restaurants anymore? I'll tell you why. Because there were a few people, probably not too many, but there were a few people that wouldn't be mindful of other people. People who had asthma, people who had uh, other respiratory diseases, people who just didn't like the smell of tobacco smoke. Uh, and they would light up regardless without regard to their feelings or their wants or desires. And of course, as we all know, that smoke goes, goes everywhere. So our liberty to smoke was infringing on other people's liberty. So we had to sacrifice that for the greater good. In the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, many churches struggled with a host of questions. Is it safe to meet in person? This church and many Methodist churches across the country decided that that was not going to be a good idea. We ran the risk of spreading disease. Should masks be required in meetings in person? And most of us aren't even meeting in person. We're doing Zoom meetings or uh, similar electronic means of, of having committee meetings. Uh, people of faith vehemently disagree on their answers to some of these questions. There are churches uh, across this country who've, re who've relied on the grace of God to protect them while the three or four hundred of them meet in the same sanctuary and give each other hugs and kisses and pats on the back. And that's all wonderful, uh, but as I spent some time in Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War, and one of the phrases I brought back with me, uh, and I'll translate it for you, is uh, trust in God, but remember to tie up your own camel. If you believe that God is looking out for you, he's not going to make that camel stay where you left it. If you want it to be there when you get back, you need to tie it up. The same thing is true in the rest of our lives. If we want something to happen, these are God's hands. These are God's feet. If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. So use the brains that God gave you and trust in his love that it will work out for the best. Moving on to Mark, Jesus' teaching ministry starts in Capernaum. And it's on the Sabbath day in a synagogue, which is the very center of the biggest city in Galilee. Jesus' exorcism represents an attack on the, ex the existence of the scribes. Jesus came into the, the scribes' turf, it's a sacred place at a sacred time. It's their 
it's their house. Jesus, you come into my house and teach lessons in front of me? Scribes were none too pleased. When Jesus taught, the people recognized him as having authority. He wasn't just mouthing the words. They understood when he said what he said that he believed it and he knew it to be the truth. It was not the case of the scribes. They honored Jesus. They didn't necessarily honor the scribes because honor is an acquired state. Uh, it's gained through activity, through social interaction, where people recognize what your abilities are and say, hey, I see what he's saying. I know what he's doing. I understand. I may not like what he's telling me, but I understand. Main activity of the scribes was teaching. And it, it, it consisted of a lecture on the law or on the prophets with relevant implications on how the people were to live their lives in that day. Jesus then was usurping their role as teachers and did it showing more authority than they did. Again, scribes are none too pleased. It's bad enough you came in to teach a lesson instead of me. You grabbed the stage and you took over and the people liked you better. He was not representing a new teaching, but was giving an interpretation that proved to be more relevant than the one the scribes were giving. Again, he was upstaging the scribes. The center of the scripture, Jesus orders the demon out of the man, shows where the main emphasis is. It's in the exorcism itself. Mark seems to be leading the reader to consider what a demon-possessed person was doing in the synagogue. When's the last time a demon-possessed individual walked into this church? It wouldn't be the place that a demon-possessed person would go. And yet, he showed up in this particular synagogue at that time. Lost my place. Oh, uh, Mark's view. The uh, in in Mark's view, the scribes' teaching itself is demonic because it does not liberate, but it was oppressing and enslaving the people. Oftentimes, um, the uh, Jesus talked about he came not to uh, to enforce the law, but to liberate us from the law. There are if you ask, depending on who you ask, um, and I'll ask the question, how many laws are there in the Bible? And it depends on your point of view. If you're going for the literal answer to the question, it's 613. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament telling you how to live your life, to braid your hair, to use a mirror, to use a mirror. Okay, it's a sin for it's a sin for a widow. To look in a mirror during uh, uh, the uh, the morning period. It's a sin for a woman to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. She might see a gray hair and pluck it out, and thereby doing work, she's working on the Sabbath, and that's a sin. Um, there are all kinds of really wonderful laws. Anybody who's had a ham sandwich lately. That's a sin. Uh, bacon with your eggs, that's a sin. Uh, shrimp cocktail, that's a sin. Uh, there are an awful lot of sins uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and uh, the first five books in general. If you ask someone else how many laws are there, they'll tell you ten. They're the Ten Commandments. And everybody knows all of those. Although it's difficult for some people to stand 
stand there and, and list them all in order. Uh, and then if you ask how many Christians, there, how many commandments are there for Christians? This is the tricky one. Because in my particular point of view, there's only two. Jesus told, told us what they are. Love God, love your neighbor. You're done. If everything you do shows love for God and love for your neighbor, it's all good. You don't have to worry about eating shrimp. Okay. Mark seems to be leading the reader to consider what a demon-possessed... Uh, no, sorry. Uh, Jesus is recognized by the scribes as the Holy One. The demons recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God. Now, demons are spiritual creatures too, which always worries me because uh, people will tell you that they're spiritual, but they're not religious. Uh, demons are spiritual as well. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Um, the reason why they recognize Jesus as the Holy One is because he's a spiritual creature as well. They recognize that link, and they're afraid of him. They're sorely afraid of him. Jesus commands the demons to be silent, and they are. Because he doesn't want them to name him in front of the people. He's not ready for that yet. It's not that part of his ministry. Because naming a person is to know them, know their soul. So if you knew he was the Son of God, that would give you some insight into who he was, and it gives you some actual power over him. He's not ready for that yet. We all know the, uh, the story of Rumpelstiltskin. When she figures out what his name is, she has the princess has power over him. Uh, the order to come out of him has connotations related to death and judgment and the final destiny of the soul and of mankind. If the time had been fulfilled and the domain of God has come near, that means that God's enemies are beginning to be defeated and that Satan's rule over the world is about to end. Naming the demons is a way to recognize that they exist. What are our demons? What demons do we possess or possess us individually? We start with the big one. The first demon we have is unbelief. Everyone struggles with that from time to time. Sometimes in times of joy and sometimes in, in times of grief and sometimes when things are just on a plateau. It's the feeling that nothing can be done to solve our problems. I have no power. Then springing from this one comes the others in fearful company. These are our demons as a society. Homophobia, racism, sexism, classism, religious and ideological intolerance, Violence at home, violence at work, violence at school, poverty, militarism, terrorism, war, greed, extreme individualism, globalization, out-of-control capitalism. The list is exhaustive and exhausting. Media-infused fear that, leaves, that leads to paranoia governmental manipulation of information, and so many more. Praying is not a pious recognition of God's will or an exercise that puts our mind at ease, but rather an intensely personal struggle within each dis disciple and among us collectively to resist the despair and distractions 
that cause us to practice unbelief, to abandon or avoid the ways of Jesus. In other words, it is the struggle to believe that change for the better can really happen, that a better world is possible. Methodists, by definition, struggle forward toward perfection. We don't make it, but every day we try to get there a little bit closer. Unless we name our demons, they will name us. And if they name us, they control us. And they will destroy us. It takes courage for us to name these demons because it will likely be difficult and it will make us unpopular. Some will consider us apostates. Well, real Christians don't believe that, do they? I leave you with this question that only you can answer yourself. Here's the question. Am I willing to pay the price for a better family, a better community, a better nation, a better world, as Christ did? Now for our benediction. Sorry? Oh, you have a closing hymn? My bad. Oh. All right. I'm sitting down. the benediction one quick reminder that next sunday is communion sunday so to remember to bring uh, your communion supplies i want to thank you for allowing me to be here today and we'll begin we'll end with our benediction go out from this place to a world fully known by god where there is fear, remember the authority of Christ Jesus. Where there is need of love, give it. Where there is pain, bring peace. For you are loved by the one who redeems and freed to live by the word of life. Go in peace with the knowledge that God's power is given to the church, the body of Christ, for the sake of the, of the life of the world. Amen.